Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling, and food addictions. Our guests share the recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, this week on the Living Free Show, we'll focus on how Alcoholics Anonymous helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. Today, because of coronavirus restrictions, I'm interviewing from home via Zoom, so I'd like to welcome Steve to the show. Hi, Steve. Hi, Bill, and uh, thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Steve's an alcoholic, and he's recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, so, Steve, we usually start talking about you know, growing up and family. So, what was what was your early life like? Okay, so I I grew up in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. I was, I was born in 1962. My Father was a, uh, a blue-collar worker. He was a, a tradesman, and he worked his way up to being in the foreman at the factory he worked at. He was in the boiler-making game. Uh, my mother was uh, just, uh, they called a housewife back then. And I have two brothers. I have a brother and a sister, a uh, brother older, sister younger. So in those days, well, Glenroy uh, was a bit of a paddock in those days, really, when they bought their house out there. So I watched uh, the houses grow up amongst me. So uh, it's a lot different what it is today. Uh, we we played a lot with other kids in the street, on the road. <laughs> we played cricket on the road. You couldn't do that these days. I went to school, uh, went to primary school, local primary school and local high school. Yeah, so it was basically probably an average, ordinary upbringing for those times. And what was life like at school? I was pretty, I was pretty smart, but I was a, a smart ass as well. I already displayed the symptoms of uh, of the uh, malady of alcoholism without the alcohol. Although I did actually uh, have my first taste of alcohol in uh, when I was in um, primary school. I uh, school I underachieved at school basically. Uh, I was good at sport and I was good at good at maths and English. But I, uh, because of the um, introversion, I guess, I, I, I knew, as, as I know it today, I could get on with kids, but I really didn't sort of connect with them. I didn't sort of, I wanted to be on my own. I, was, I, I, I think it was fear and anxiety was really building its way up at those times. So I underachieved at school. Were, were you happy at home? Did you have any alcohol or drug issues in your family? Uh, only only a couple of times did uh, did my parents uh, see me drunk in the early years. I don't think there was any alcohol. My, I knew my grandfather on, on my mother's side, and uh, he definitely wasn't an alcoholic. He definitely he didn't drink. He, I think he was a bit of a teetotaler. On my father's side, they were, they were social drinkers, except his brother was an alcoholic and, and, a, and a chronic gambler. That, that was the only sign of alcoholism. Uh, there wasn't much sign of alcoholism in my family that I saw. 
sounds like you had difficulty making friends. I did. I, I usually only had one friend and they were usually, probably they were alcoholic in type. I gravitated towards the smokers. <laughs> Uh, cigarette, cigarette. I'm not drug smokers in those days, early days, but cigarette smokers, and uh, kids that seemed to be getting into a bit, getting into strife a bit, doing the odd wag of school and cutting out of school and cutting classes and those sort of things. I uh, seemed to gravitate towards the the naughty ones. Yeah. So, what did your teachers think? Did did they think you could do better? I oh, always, yes, always. They could see that I was quite intelligent, quite uh, quite smart. I was, I was fairly well read too. I loved reading. That was one of the things that held me in good stead. But and always on the report cards, you know, most of the most of the time was could do better. Uh, has has done well, but could do better. But that decreased as the as the years decreased too. Until I basically was getting D's in high school at the end of high school. So, what about your brother and sister? Did you get on well with them? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, to to an extent, yes. My my, as I said in our in our home life, we could uh, sort of play on the street, and uh, there was quite a few kids my brother's age that uh, were um, living in that street. So there was you know half a dozen of us that played together and and rode bikes together and went tadpoling together and all that, all those sort of things. My sister, yeah, I, I seemed to get on well with my sister when she was a couple of years younger. We didn't have a, have a wide social life as a family, really. We saw our grandparents and uh, the occasional church function. So, it was, yeah, it, was, it wasn't overly getting on, but we did get on okay. You mentioned you had your first taste of alcohol in primary school. So what, what happened there? Oh, a kid smuggled along a, a can of VB, a couple of cans of VB to a... Uh, we went on an excursion to Botanic Gardens, I think it was. Then we just all had a, a few of a few of the naughty kids had a had a sip of the beer <laughs> on that excursion day. Did you like it? I, I, I really was indifferent. I, I didn't like the taste of it, but I, I didn't. I hadn't got that uh, that hook, that effect that uh, that I got when uh, when I uh, tasted it uh, when I was closer to uh, adulthood. Well, a lot of alcoholics that I talk to sort of start drinking in around 13, 14, 15. So when did you sort of get your real taste for it? Uh, form two uh, was the first uh, big drunk. I can remember my, as I said, I hung around with my brothers, with my brother and the kids in the street. And they were, they were a couple of years older than me. So when one of the guys was, uh, he was an alcoholic for sure. Uh, he he was coming up 18. I would have been uh, 14, and uh, he got a pool table in his in his back shed, and he got an apprenticeship with the railways. And and in those days, in the railways, they were you know the Victorian and Australian beer drinking champions, uh, and and that was a it was a real culture drinking culture in those days. And so he uh, started to uh, we'd have a pool night on Friday nights. And he'd start to drink, and I joined in that culture and used to to drink up a bit. And uh, I found that I, that's where I got the taste for it. I found that I could put away a lot without getting drunk. One like I remember one night they had to we had to carry my brother home, and we, you know, I drank more than he did on that night, and I was still on my feet. So that's that's where the culture of the um, 
that uh, developed in me, I guess. So when did it start having an effect? When I, when I really started the work and, and lost all inhibitions on drinking, that's when it started to have the ill effects on me. And I, I had started smoking dope too, around about that time. I guess when I started smoking dope as well around that time and using other drugs, you know, graduating into, into other, other, other substances as well. And that would have been around about the age of, I'd reckon about 17. So did alcohol give you a buzz? Yeah. Yeah, I loved, I loved the buzz of it. But I, um, I remember the first time that I really set out to get drunk uh, with no, um, no inhibitions on me. Uh, that guy that in the railways, he got his license, driver's license. And it was, a, it was a novelty to drink on Sundays in those days. And the only, the only bars that were open was the, uh, the bar. There was two bars at the airport. And they were both open on Sunday because they were at, for travellers. It was the Jackaroo and the Golden Nugget. And so he took me to the, um, the Golden Nugget because it had two entrances. And, and he knew that if, if, if uh, security came in one entrance, we could get out the other entrance. So I remember that night I had about uh, half a dozen pots, which is quite a lot. I, I think I was about 14 at the time. I had half a dozen pots in about half an hour. I can remember coming home, but that's that's that was the buzz for me. That was the <laughs> that was after about three. It was just you know the atmosphere and and the uh, company and all those sort of things. But because I drank through it and and uh, over drank, I ended up vomiting. You know that projectile vomiting uh, line on the bed. Now I remember distinctly this night because I'm all right if the bed does the horizontal turns and you just spin around. That, I'm okay with that. But when it starts doing the vertical turns over and over and over again, it's <laughs> it's not pleasant. So I can remember I hit the roof with me. It was like the in the Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that. I do remember that distinctly, and that would be any time I'm describing alcoholism as as getting that buzz as a youngster getting that uh, mental obsession and that, that, that craving, that would be the time for me. Yeah, yeah. I've had, uh, I've had the bed rotate horizontally, but I've never had it rotate vertically. <laughs> uh, classic. So starting work and, you know, I guess getting a bit more money and stuff, it takes a bit of money to, to drink. So did that free you up a bit to drink more? Yeah, oh yeah, I, I got my first job was in a, in a actually in a foundry. I was in the pattern making or the engineering uh, side of it as an apprentice. But in in a foundry, there they're heavy, heavy, heavy drinkers, usually uh, problem drinkers, and because uh, it's it's labour and work, and it's in a furnace and it's hot and all that sort of thing for them. So that's a group that I sort of drank with from my earliest working times. And, and I drank, drank a lot of booze there and uh, I gravitated through, through the work. Now, I worked there for 18 months or so. Along the lines, I sort of uh, got more into the dope scene as well. Another mate who was more dope smoker, but we were also even down a lot of Jack Daniels whiskey as well. So diverged from a, from a sort of a factory condition to using at home. And I, my preference because of my introversion was I'd like to smaller people, smaller crowds, and and eventually on my own. So that's that's sort of how it diverged off from from that. Yeah. 
a culture of drinking at work. So did you sort of socialise with those people or did you socialise individually? No, it was pure It was pure drinking at all. It was just, that's, I didn't socialise with anyone at work at, at, that, at that place anyway or any other workplace that I worked for. I only had a very short working career. I, 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 uh, my, that, that's only spanned up to about the age of early 20s. I became unemployable through the effects the worst effects of the substances, the drug, alcohol and other drugs on me. So I didn't have much time to get into any socialisation at all. I'd, I'd what people call the isolated loner. So what did that mean then, uh, becoming unemployable? It just meant that I was became derelict, really. Lost the, lost the ability to, because your work gives you good habits. You know, you get you have a get up, have a shower and a shave and all those sort of things. And because I didn't have that, I just gravitated more towards towards drinking and towards smoking dope. One particular person that could get the drugs and I, I just began to drink on my own. Began to drink in quantities that were lethal, toxic, highly toxic, uh, lethal doses. And that's how I went. And that just made me more, you know, that just affected the central nervous system and the brain and the whole health uh, deteriorated and declined uh, to a point where I just couldn't get off my bed, really. So how did you fund your drinking then? Usually through, uh, I, I, I didn't pay board. My parents didn't kick me out, they should have. I'd, uh, you know, just basically whatever, whatever it took to get it. Stealing and dealing. Yeah, but I wasn't good at that. I had a I had a pretty sharp sort of conscience. Even what my conscience wasn't drowned in it, so I didn't last very long. So what does that mean? Didn't last long. Well, I see some addicts go on to for years and years doing you know doing uh, doing deeds of you know of um, deception and that. I, I I didn't last long at all, really. So what did you fall back to? I fell into dereliction, just just absolute dereliction. That's the only way to describe it. I found myself drinking at the, at the um, Queen Victoria markets uh, pubs at six o'clock one morning. I just realised I was no different from the from the stiffs that used to hang around at the Queen Victoria market in the days back in the day. There was um, in Melbourne. There was um, uh, they called it. The, there was the Hungry Mile behind Flinders Street Station. There was down Spencer Street end of the city where the Spencer Street station was. And they, that was where Derrick, there was a community like the Bowery in New York, not as big, but there was a community of alcoholics down there. I just, that's where I sort of hung the waterfront hotel. Today's society wouldn't know that because they they cleaned them out when they uh, when Crown Casino came in. Yeah, so that's basically it. I was, I was basically derelict in a, uh, you know, just aimless and, you know, there was no meaningful life at all. Yeah, when I, when I reflect back on it. So what did your family think? What did your mum and dad think? Oh, they were just beside themselves. They didn't understand alcoholism from the inside and they just tolerated me, basically. My kids, are teenagers now, have, the, have addiction or the signs of addiction. Uh, yeah, I know how they feel now, but uh, at the time, being you know such uh, so self self centred and self introverted and that, uh, I couldn't see 
the damage that I was doing to him. But I realised that you know, a lot of the stress and anxiety would have caused my father to have heart attacks that he otherwise wouldn't have had if it wasn't the stress and anxiety uh, added to it that I did. So yeah, it's, it's a tragic situation. What do you do when you when your kids? Uh, they knew I was sick. They knew they, they knew I wasn't doing it on purpose or anything like that. But uh, what what could they do? Did anybody else try and help you? Yeah, I, I just wouldn't let them. I, I, you just put up the walls internally. You just, I'd sit there and listen to them and nod the head a bit. And, uh, but in, internally, where it counts, uh, I just couldn't see any hope. It's very, very common that once you lose hope, it's very hard to come back. Yeah, 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 that's right. Well, listen, uh, we might take a short break there.
So I said goodbye And that song was Last Time by Sandy Facey thanks to the Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can either head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking to Steve and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Steve, you mentioned being in a very very sad, sad state, being un- unemployed, unemployable, and not really wanting help from anybody. So how long did it last before you realised that you needed to do something? I can remember that I was lying, lying on my bed in the back of my family home. I uh, hadn't been, you know, I hadn't, uh, I'd been staying there for, I don't know how long it was. Uh, I was smoking dope through bongs and that, and I couldn't even get my head off the bed six inches to to put the bong in my mouth. I, and, and I was done. And I knew I was done. It was finished. It was over. I had been watching at that time, late on late, uh, late Sunday nights, there was this program from America and it was called Insight. And it was a religious type program. And it, it was like the Reader's Digest magazine on, on television. And they had these, in, the, in, in my day and, and prior to my day, Alcoholics Anonymous was one of the very few known places for alcoholics to go. And in, on Insight, they had, and, and in the Reader's Digest, they had articles on Alcoholics Anonymous. And on this Insight show, they mocked up a meeting. And I know it was a mocked up meeting because they... Uh, dragged the camera around and put the full face on a person. I know now that from our traditions that you don't put your full face on, on a screen as, as in Alcoholics Anonymous. So these were only actors. I knew that now. But they go around and they, they, they put this uh, camera on their face, right up on their face, and they say, I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic. And the next one, I'm Betty and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm whatever and I'm an alcoholic. And when, as they went around, the thought came very clear into my mind, I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't know what that thought meant, but that thought was just came into my mind. I didn't know what alcoholism was. There was no, I've got a drinking problem or anything like that. There was none of that in my mind, but I just had that thought, I'm an alcoholic. So that's that's the first thought that I had. So from that, because it was a mock AA meeting, I got my mum to contact the local Alcoholics Anonymous group which met in the church that she attended in Glenroy because I was too frightened 
to make contact with anybody at that stage. And, and she did. Now that was in September of 1986. And that's how I got to my first meeting. So were you apprehensive about going to AA? Well, I was, but I, I was totally defeated in my own mind. I, I, I was totally hopeless, totally uh, defeated. And, but I, I was in that state of grace. I had one focus. I had to see Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter what. And I was fearful. I was always fearful. But I knew that I just had to go to a meeting uh, because of that. Uh, pro program that I saw in that thought that was locked into my mind. That thought is not, didn't come from me. I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. Uh, so that thought in my mind, I have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, overcame the fear that I had to go. So, so I went to the meeting and I was introduced. Oh, that's right. I didn't go directly to the meeting. I, 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 my mum arranged me for me to go to the priest of that parish, the minister, and that minister took me over to the meeting. The he he lived on the on the grounds of the church, and there was a, a big house there called Wiseman House, and that's where the meeting was. So I went to his uh, vestry or whatever they call the priest's house at that time, and he took me over and introduced me to their twelve step contact, who was registered with the priest in case anyone any alcoholics approached. And he took me over and introduced, and his name was George. And that, that was the best person for me that I could have met. It proved to be a person who was able to, I don't know what the right words, how to say that. In AA, they call it a sponsor. I don't, I don't use that term myself. I, I just call it someone that has the grace to be able to demonstrate mirror sobriety. And this guy, to me, I didn't know at the time, but to me, mirrored sobriety. I looked into his eyes and they were clear and he, he was clean and he, and he was um, animated and uh, I, I saw sobriety in him. And that was, a, that, was a, that was a miracle because I was too sick to be able to understand or comprehend anything. You know, I, I, was, I was very sick. Most alcoholics are very sick. You know, we're sicker than what we know we are when we come in the door. So it was what I saw that was important there. And that was uh, early September of 1986. I went to that meeting for a few times. I wanted to stop drinking and I wanted to stop all drugs, but I looked at the 12 steps on the wall at my first meeting and I read them, I read through them and step one admitted I was powerless over alcohol. My life was unmanageable. I, I skipped over that, came to believe the power greater than itself going I didn't understand that one. Made a decision to care, turn my will all my life over to care of God as we understand. I didn't care about God. Four made a searching and fearless moral inventory. I didn't understand that one. And number five says, admitted to God, to ourselves and another human being, the exact nature of a wrong. And I balked on that one because I didn't want to have any contact with another human being on any intimate sort of level. And it wasn't God that the thing there. I, I don't care about God. I, that's everything or nothing to me. But having that in contact with another human being, so that's that's what sort of um, stopped my mind from fully accepting it. And I understand what happened there because without that first step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Without that admission, my mind was never going to be clarity in my mind at all. And it wasn't until eighteen months later, after I had the worst 
drinking bout that I ever had and relapse bout. It was a relapse because I was in AA where I had hallucinations that I didn't think I was going to get back from. And what that showed me was that importance of that first step. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, otherwise they'd become unmanageable. I looked at the first step as I saw that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, but I didn't understand that there's a second admission that my life had become unmanageable. Right? The first admission that powerless over alcohol and the second admission that my life has become unmanageable. What it, for me, what it meant was I could smoke dope because I wanted to stop when I first came, but in my first meeting. But eventually, I thought of the drug marijuana different to alcohol, and it's not for, for an alcoholic. A drug is a drug is a drug for an alcoholic, it's prescribed. So I, I smoked dope, and that led me back. Well, that's, that's the relapse in itself. 18 months later, I understood the better, and I, I actually went to Narcotics Anonymous to get a fellowship with other people using other drugs other than alcohol and realised it's the same illness. And that's that was the turning point for me. And that was in 1988. And that's when I got, uh, that's my sober date, to August 23rd of 1988. So that's over 32 years sober, clean. Yes, so that, that was, a, that's my introduction to AA. That without that first step, yeah, then, you know, I, I just wasn't in the ball game. Coming into Narcotics Anonymous then, what was the realisation for you that was different when you came into AA? I, I know you mentioned the first step, but how did you realise that drugs and alcohol were the same, same effect? What was that? Well, in, in NA, they have uh, a different basic text, obviously. NA uh, started... When, a, when an addict in AA in 1953, he was in AA, I think he joined AA in 1950, and he couldn't make the identification at depth. And so the AA people helped him to apply the, the program to drugs. And that AA had been doing that for many years, trying to carry the message to all human beings, and uh, drug addicts obviously were the next frontier. So he kept a journal and his journal became NA's, what they, what they call basic text. And so he wrote in a line, he wrote a lot, but he, he wrote a line that hit me really hard. Thinking of alcohol as different has caused a great many addicts to relapse. We are people with the disease of addiction and we cannot afford to be confused about this. Alcohol is a drug and uh, we are people with the disease of addiction who must abstain from all drugs in order to recover. That identification there was the main catalyst. Plus, there was people in, in NA that would just simply say, when, when people mentioned alcohol, they'd just say, a drug is a drug is a drug, and NA is not interested in what or how much you use, who your connections were, what you've done in the past, how much or how little you have, just in what do you want to do about your problem, and it's, it's addiction. So the first step in NA is just we admitted we were powerless over addiction, and alcohol is a drug. That's, I think that's what clarified it in my mind. Now, it sounds pretty clear. So how long did you stay in NA before you went back to AA or did you go to both? I, I did a, a lot of meetings in the early days. Uh, it, it's actually quite, the cultures are quite different and the demographics and all that are quite different between AA and NA. And especially in, in Melbourne in the, in the times of, uh, you know, going back, uh, times are very, very different these days. You know, we, um, 
uh, I, I lived in Melbourne. I get on public transport. I go to meetings, and the mainstays were the lunchtime meetings. That had, they were lunchtime meetings of AA and NA at St Francis Church, a very famous church in Melbourne. And I go to those meetings. The AA meeting was on the, in the on the top, like a it was it was a hall, and there was a lower meeting room, you know, a couple of steps down, and there was an upper meeting room. And NA was in the lower meeting room with the back entrance, and AA was in the upper meeting room in the other other entrance. But the only toilets there were that you had to to go to the toilets. The NA people had to go through the the back of the AA meeting to get to the toilets. And geez, that caused <laughs> that caused some problems in those days. But um, you know, I could I, if I could go at that time I, if I didn't like the NA meeting, I just go just go up a couple of steps and go to the AA meeting. And they were big meetings too in those in those early days at lunchtime meetings. I think the AA had about 60, 60 people at its lowest numbers, and the NA meeting had thirty members at its lowest numbers. So I was fortunate in that respect. Yeah, they're pretty big meetings. That, that they were big meetings. The, the AA meeting at it said it's on a Friday. I don't know why Friday might be the, you know, get a bit nervous for the weekend day. There could be up to 100, 110 people at the AA meeting. So once you'd figured out that, you know, drugs and alcohol were the same, then how did that change your approach to recovery? Well, I, I just, I stopped trying to fight them. I just forgot about them. I just, I just made up my mind that I couldn't use, I must abstain. And I had to get that thought out of my mind where my mind was fighting whether I'll use or not. And that's what the steps do, the 12 steps, as practice as a way of life. They get rid of that thought. You know, I don't even think, I did, wasn't even thinking about using it at all. And, but prior to that, my whole thinking was taken up with that, with either using or not using drugs. My, my, virtually my whole uh, thinking was taken up with that. When I went through the steps, it, it wasn't anymore. My consciousness was open to a new way of life. In, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's expressed in the 12th step. They call it a spiritual awakening. It just means that the, the soul or the spirit wakes up, becomes aware of life rather than, rather than of um, the effect of alcohol and chasing the illusions and delusions that alcohol uh, can make me happy or can, can make me uh, do things. And I really believe that, and I think most alcoholics really believe that alcohol uh, enhances life. You know, I can do things better with a few drinks in me. I can't because I'm an alcoholic, and if I have a few drinks, that means that sets up the phenomenon of craving, so I can never have a few drinks. You know, that's the, that's the difference, that craving, once I took it, once I took the alcohol into my system, or once I got the drug into my system and got that effect of that, then, you know, the body was craving out for more and more and more and more, which was beyond my mental control. Now, when I stopped the craving with through the abstinence, you know, and that was my my will that got abstinence, I, I wanted to get sober from my experience on nearly dying, you know, that last relapse, that was a, that was a motivating factor. So I, I, I got clean long enough day after day after day after day after day to be able to understand that I couldn't do it for the rest of my life. And the only way I was going to live a day at a time was by working the 12 steps. That, those principles were the only things that I could focus on in the day, in the moment. And that's what, that's what I learned through going through the 12 steps. And the spiritual awakening just meant that obsession for drugs and alcohol was not there. 
And even when it was there, it was it was there because I wanted to help someone else by listening to them at a meeting, by just talking to them, by by whatever for what whatever way that manifested itself, that that was that replaced that thought of that obsession for alcohol. And what about concept of God? If could you align yourself with that? The thing I found out was Bill Wilson when he wrote the big book, he he couldn't come at a personal God, because. His conception of a personal God was it was shaped by his experience. And his experience was that his parents were divorced. And so he was in, and, and that was back in the early part of the 20th century. And that was a real no, 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 no in those days. So he couldn't, he couldn't, his conception, he couldn't come at a loving personal God. And that was the same as me. I couldn't come at a loving personal God because I wanted to be God in my own life. I wanted to run my own life. I wanted everything to go my way. And uh, Bill Wilson's writing in the, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous showed me that was the core of my problem. It wasn't, it wasn't God, God himself, God is God. It was my image and understanding of God shaped by the experience of, of alcoholism, of, of insane thinking as far as alcohol went, of character defects such uh, like through selfishness that caused me to be isolated, that caused me to not be able to work and socialise and those sort of things. It caused me not to be able to uh, take care of myself. They call it low self-esteem. I don't know what you call it, but it, it, it comes from within and it's shaped by your, your, my beliefs and environment. So to me, there's a line in that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, God is either everything or else he is nothing. What is our choice to be? I didn't care. God is God. So eventually I come to understand God as a loving God through the uh, experience of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps and through the working with others, through trying to carry the message. I got that experience of a loving God internally. You know, most people, when they talk about God, they're talking about what they see religion doing and what they see this doing and that doing. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we're taught to look inside ourselves and to look to look inside our creation and creator because Alcoholics Anonymous through the 12 steps creates a new nature within me as a recovering alcoholic. I've got a recovering nature now. I still got my alcoholic nature, <laughs> but I now have a recovering nature through the discipline and practice of the 12 steps. Okay, well, listen, we might take another short break.
last song was To Call Your Mind by Lisa Caruso, uh, again from the Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. On the 15th of October 1970, the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne collapsed during construction, killing 35 people and injuring many more. 3CR will mark this important 50-year commemoration with a special broadcast featuring audio from our archives. Oh, I think it's uh, well documented why it collapsed. Uh, the uh, engineer released every second bolt and it just couldn't handle it and down it came. But for a while it was not exactly clear who had survived. The first impression was that uh, I've never been in a war, but it certainly looked like a, a war zone. People couldn't wait and they were jumping in the water trying to get to save some of their mates. The Westgate Bridge disaster, 50 years on. Tune in at 2pm on Thursday, the 15th of October. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate Community Radio 855 on your AM dial. Voice of the people, the people. Black and deadly Friday, Robbie Fort Radic Radio. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some black and deadly sound. Appreciate Community Radio 855 on your AM dial. Voice of the people, the people. Black and deadly Friday, Robbie Fort Radic Radio. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Steve about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Steve, NAA and NA, your life starts to change. So what, what were the big changes for you because of the recovery that you were having? The big changes were I, I, stayed, I stayed sober free of alcohol, free of drugs. I participated in a way of life that uh, was um, answered all my living problems. I was accepted in a, you know, like a living socially in the community, being able to uh, give, take and give love, you know, and, and was able to um, develop new skills, get more confidence. Uh, and from that, from that, take that, take those skills, relationship skills, and living skills, into uh, into my work life. As I said, I became unemployable very early on in my life, so I was up up against the wall as far as that went. Uh, it took me a lot of time to do a lot of training courses and and explore what what my vocation and you know was going to be and is. But along the way, it just allowed me to develop a spiritual life that answers every problem that I have when I die. When it's time for me to die, uh, that's, you know, I, it, it's, it's answered all those fears, if you like. It's taken care of all anxiety. Uh, I, found, um, I found heaven, really, is, 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 uh, if you want to use the analogies, uh, is heaven and hell. Lived in hell in addiction and found heaven in, uh, in in the anonymous program. Recovering to the point of being able to socialise with people in AA. So was it easier to socialise with people outside AA and NA? It became easier uh, because you know it's uh, NA Narcotics Anonymous, which um, is uh, a separate fellowship from Alcoholics Anonymous. But Narcotics Anonymous, and and I, I go to both fellowships. So I'm, this is my just my personal experience. Narcotics Anonymous has the, the Jimmy Kinnan, the founder's line was, 
we aim to become productive and responsible citizens or productive and responsible members of society. So I, I took that on board and that was a name and that's a, that's a lifetime undertaking to become a productive and responsible member of society. Uh, that, would, that was a really a goal. Yeah, it's, 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 I think that, that's what I base my journey on is becoming a productive and responsible member of society. And to my hard way of thinking of myself, I would say that would only be in the last five years for me, even though I've had, I've had, you know, externally it's, it's looked okay, but I've never understood the, you know, to be productive and responsible uh, to the, to the level that I do today. It's just amazing. So what about relationships then? Did it improve your relationships with your family? 100% with my family. When I made amends to my parents, they just, uh, they accepted my amends and say, you know, just don't don't drink, don't use, and uh, that's, we'll draw a line in the sand, you know, that everything, you don't have to say anymore. You just stay sober and that's, uh, that's all we want. I, I made the mistake of getting married. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, that lasted for about 11 years and I got uh, th- two, uh, three kids, three kids and I, I get on well. I'm, I'm more married now with my divorced wife who's in the fellowship than, than what I was when I was married to her. Has it improved my relationship with people? It has because I, I don't worry about it anymore so much. I'm not so self-obsessed that I have to worry about, about my uh, relationship with people. I just let, it, let them happen if... If I would need to detach and walk away, then I walk away. If I, you know, I, I, I can discern better how to proceed in relationship than what I could in the past. I'm not great at relationships. I'm still a hermit. Well, that's my preference. I, I, I prefer that. I, I don't mind my own company. I'm more social these days because I'm older and need, need a bit more company than what I did as a, as, as, as a, when a bit younger. But yeah, relationships are not, not hard for me. It's, it's either, um, I, you know, if, if I can't relate to someone, then I just uh, work on me. There's something wrong with me. And then I work on that. And then it'll come to the point where it's either just leave it, leave it be and you can't uh, have a relationship with everybody. You know, sometimes the best relationships are just you over there and me over here. So what, what about with the kids then? Um, you mentioned that there was some addiction problems there. So how's it been having somebody with a problem in your life it's hell absolutely it's absolute hell i can see because i know i can see where they're at and i know that if it if it continues on the same trajectory that they'll die uh, of, of this illness of this spiritual malady and and they'll suffer and that but that's the way it has to be you know i had to i had to go to uh, the depths of, of, of despair and further and then that's what my kids are going to have to do all i can do is see and this is this is a beautiful thing just to be able to see that I, I make amends yeah, by by treating my kids as, as as lovingly as I can. I'm making amends to my parents who are dead for the way that I treated them. Thank God I got the twelve steps in my life and and the full knowledge of my condition. So I have the full knowledge. I, I, I'm not inside their heads or in their bodies, but I have the full knowledge of their condition of their powerlessness. And I know when they and they f up, it's not there. It's it's not because they want to or anything. It's because they're powerless. And that's uh, I keep that in mind, and I work the work through the steps on it. I always take inventory. As um, if they agitate me, then I'm agitated. And the first first call is for me to do, to quiet the agitation within me, not them, me. 
And when I quieten the agitation within me, that quiets the agitation between us. Thank God for, for the anonymous way of life. And, and, and I hope if I continue to, to practice that and show them that, and, and that, that that'll be a bridge for them to get into, into the 12 step program, wherever they may fit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the big thing is being approachable so that they can turn to you for help. I think that's the, and respecting their right to be and, and live the way they are and not try to control them because that's control is the big issue, I think. Control is playing God. That's what, that's what they say in, 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 uh, that's what that's for me. If I'm trying to control something, I'm, I'm playing God. And I just, uh, I pause and I say, I will be done or even the third step prayer that uh, free me from the bondage of self, that I may better do my will, though thy will. That's the whole key to living in heaven and hell for me. There's a, I'm a theologian and uh, there's a famous uh, uh, saying that the only thing that burns in hell is self-will. And I really believe that. For me, it's self apart from God, at being unconscious of God. God doesn't, God's there, God's the creator. And it doesn't matter who I am or what I am. I can argue with it or I can debate about it. That's my, that's my personal prerogative. But it doesn't change the fact of it. It doesn't change the fact that I'm a sober, productive member of society and, and I'm living my life joyfully in the midst of the confusion and chaos of this world. So you, you mentioned a job. So how has your recovery impacted the way you work? Well, it's, it allows me to be able to make a commitment, to be disciplined, to be obedient. And because of that, I, I, I work um, basically free of all supervision, really, because uh, I have that degree of commitment and discipline. And, and, and that's what I always wanted in, in my work and life. I wanted to, to be my own boss, basically, to, to be able to... Uh, have the freedom to do that and I have that today because of the discipline that I've got through working the 12 steps in my life it's given me a conscience so that when I'm not doing what I should be doing you know it, it disturbs me and then I either I've got to do something about that through the 12 steps and discern you know the selfishness is coming back and uh, you know I, I need to be more mindful I might owe amends to someone or I might have hurt someone or that whatever uh, so that enables. So it, I take that into my work life, too, and and it just it just allows me to I don't know to 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 be good at my job, to be good at what I do. So do you sort of plan for the future, or do you live for the, to, for today? I live for today. I just my plans for the future basically. Uh, I will be done. You know, I, I, if I just follow the basic discipline of. Get it, getting up in the morning or, or coming come conscious in the morning, just asking basically what it says, free me from the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Uh, have a think about do I owe amends to anyone or do I, um, is there anything I need to take care of as far as my relationships or as far as just in, in my own personal life? I'm aware of my defects of character and, you know, they're stubborn. Uh, the defects of character that I have today uh, are stubborn. They're, they're ones that I think are oh, compared to compared to what I was. There was, you know, they're not so bad today, and that's that's just bullshit. 
to use the language, that's just crap. So I understand that I need the guidance of another person, another another um, addict that's alcoholics that, that's trying to live a conscious contact with God in their lives, trying to live by the will of their creator. So, yeah, so if I do that, thank God at night, monitor my days, going through the day, pausing when agitated, taking a bit of quiet time instead of just rushing into rushing through everything. If I do those things, I live in I live in heaven. I live at peace. And if I don't, then I don't. So but so when the when the so-called bad times come up, they're the good times because I convert them into into joyful times. Uh, AA's taught me that uh, I have assets and liabilities in my in my character. And the liabilities are the best because they're the things that get converted to assets by the power of God within me. So, so I've, I've learned to understand that when something happens that I don't like, I just say to myself, don't, don't go off on the tangent of getting upset about it. You know, just wear it, pray about it. And then three or four days later, a week later or 10 years later, whatever it may be. And I've got that experience because I've, you know, about 30 years to work the program, then I find a, a, a peace beyond all understanding of it. That's that's what it's done for me. I don't have to worry about the future because I live in the future. So what about sponsorship? Are you involved in sponsorship? Sponsorship has come to mean all these mentorships and all these different things, and that's okay. That's The, the further you get away from something, the, the, the more different definitions you get of it. In, originally in Alcoholics Anonymous, a sponsor was someone who, who took a prospect into hospital. They got him admitted to hospital because in back in the 1930s and, and 40s when AA began, they wouldn't have a bar of alcoholics in hospitals. And what the sponsor did was they arranged for people to come and see them, you know, from their AA groups. And they arranged visits and they they guaranteed the payment. It's it's not the same as it was in a, at that that sort of type of fellowship quickly disappeared. But what a sponsor should do is ensure that the prospect has a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps and has a way and has ability to live a way of life. That's what sponsorship is. I do that from, and, and I don't get many people asking because there's many more different ways that are more attractive to people in society these days because society's different to what it was. And in five years' time, it's going to be more different than what it is today with like Zoom. And I can remember when the mobile phones came in and how, geez, this is novel. And now it's just virtually everyone's got one in their pocket and it's and Zoom's going to do a different thing. So sponsorship is, for me, is just going through those 12 steps. It's in, the, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's probably the greatest paragraph in it. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity against alcoholism as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when all activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion, carry this message. Uh, you can help where no one else can. Remember, they are very ill. If I haven't got the message, I can't carry the message. The message I'll be carrying will be one of self-will and, 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 and uh, self-will burns in hell. Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, well, listen, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Steve for sharing his recovery experience with us and talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous has helped him. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate it, Bill. 
If you'd like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can phone them on 1300 222 222 or go online at aa.org.au for more information and details of your local AA meeting. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature Natalie and Sarah from Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening and stay tuned for Alternative. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.